1: Hello and welcome to the official PFRA podcast hosted by myself, John Bozica, and George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, that's the Pro Football Researchers Association, for those that do not know. This is on the Sports History Network, and we're going to be bringing you a number of different things over the course of time, including interviews with players, uh, coaches, different writers, whatever it may be to try to highlight the game and it's many faces and many different individuals that have been part of it over the years. And um pleased to be doing this with my dad, George, and uh, it's exciting to have you here for this. And I know that this is something that the PFRA has been wanting to launch kind of for a while and have something like this. And I'm excited for some of the discussions that I think we're going to have with people on this.
0: Yeah, we've been looking to obviously... Increase the uh, social network footprint of the PFRA. And uh, with so many podcasts being uh, produced uh, in modern times, we just thought it was our time to start with a podcast because we're all about uh, disseminating, you know, pro football history in different formats, whether it's through. You know, authors or through articles in our magazine, the Coffin Corner, or through um, you know interviews and that types of things. Always looking to preserve and and disseminate that pro football history, and we just believe this is a great vehicle for that. And we're looking forward to uh, doing this for uh, you know many years to come.
1: Well, I I think a lot of people think about the game and they think about the the greats of the game that are already in the Hall of Fame. Um, The PFRA does so much more than that. Um, Obviously, with the Hall of Very Good. And with the way that it highlights players, I know through the book series that you've worked very hard on, you guys have highlighted uh, at this point three teams. I believe it is already through that and uh, maybe working on a fourth at this point, which we'll get to that over the course of time and and discuss those things. But, um, you know, I think a lot of people hear the stories from the The greats of the game. They hear John Elway talk about the game. They hear a Len Dawson talk about the game. They'll hear a Joe Namath or Lawrence Taylor tell their stories. But I think part of what we're going to try to do here is try to find those lesser-known players that spent time in an NFL locker room, had the stories, experienced the game, and and we're going to try to tell some of those stories and tell them through talking to them, talking to players who were on the teams, coaches that were part of those teams. Um, and I think getting those stories that people don't know out there, and and I mentioned the books, but that's kind of what you guys try to do through that, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it is. We, uh, you know, we try to highlight everybody, you know, whether you're a hall of famer mm-hmm. or you're just, uh, uh, you know, somebody that was, uh, uh, you know, a journeyman. And as you said, we have the hall of very good, which we started a number of years ago to try to highlight players that maybe were, you know, excellent players, but, uh, didn't possibly perform at a hall of fame, uh, level, although, we're pleased that a number of the players that we elected to our hall of very good have actually made it into the hall of fame. You know, you 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 just never know when that person is going to get that call. Um, so you know, we've tried to highlight those. I mean, we try to highlight every aspect of pro football history. And as you said, sometimes some of the best stories come from those players that just had a cup of coffee in the NFL uh, or uh, any of the the pro leagues because uh, you know we also have. You know, done articles on women's professional football. We've done articles on uh, the CFL. You know, we we run the gamut, uh, uh, even the World Football League and USFL. So, you know, anything that's at a pro level, we've we've tried to uh, to highlight uh, through the the uh, history of the of the Professional Football Researchers Association.
1: For those that don't know who both of us are, um, I'm John. George is my father. Uh, I'm a broadcaster, been a broadcaster for the better part of almost 10 years now uh, in the Northeast Ohio area. And my father, uh, George, was a lawyer for, what, 35 years and then uh, stepped away from the profession, retired from it, and since then has uh, finally decided to take up, I think, what was his first love, which was Growing up on the steps of the Hall of Fame down in Canton and finally getting to use that to uh, his expertise to be able to write and be able to, um, I guess, promote and, and, as he said, disseminate the history of the game. So we look forward to doing that with you guys here on this podcast. Now, our first guest that we're going to have on this, uh, Mark Miller, we both know this guy, we've both worked with him in the broadcast setting, but uh, a former Cleveland Brown uh, in the Cardiac Kids era. Played with the Green Bay Packers as well. Even spent some time on a USFL, I guess, practice roster, you could say, and um, has a pretty cool story to go along with him and knows a lot of things. Didn't see a ton of game action, but, I mean, he played in the NFL. He had a cup of coffee. He was in the locker room. He was part of the stories. He had guys staying at his house, which I'm sure we'll hear some of those stories. So um, excited for this first one.
0: Yeah, I am too. Uh, Mark uh, spoke at our uh, convention, uh, mm-hmm. something that we do every other year, and he spoke at the uh, convention that we had in 2021 in Canton. Uh, it was delayed a year because of COVID. It was a celebration of the 100th anniversary of the NFL, and Mark was one of our uh, former player uh, speakers that we had at the convention. We try to have former players speak at all of our conventions uh, and tell their stories uh, from you know basically their whole football career and the effect that it had on them uh, in their lives. And, uh, it's always, uh, unique and interesting to hear those stories. And, uh, Mark was, uh, did a fantastic job at the convention, but we thought it'd be nice to explore his story a little bit further, uh, you know, through the podcast.
1: So we've told you about us. We've told you about what our show is and, uh, that will begin now. The official PFRA podcast will be joined by Mark Miller after this. To be joined now by our guest on the Professional Football Researchers Association podcast, and that is Mark Miller, former quarterback for the Cleveland Browns. Uh, played his college ball at Bowling Green, uh, and for those that care, played his high school ball in Stark County at Canton South. Way back in the day, um, and uh, Mark, thanks for joining uh, George and I and uh,
2: being part of the podcast. Oh, guys, I'm excited about it. Good to see you guys.
1: Good to see you too, and and good to have you on here. You know. Um, we were talking about this, and, and obviously discussing, you know, different people that we could have on, and uh, you know, your name came right to the top because we know you, we we've been around you for a while, we've heard your stories, but uh, I want to start first maybe with a question that I don't know that anybody's ever asked you, but what started your love for the game of football? Like, when was the first time that a young Mark Miller saw that that pigskin oblong shaped ball and said, "I want to throw that around someday."
2: Well, that's a darn good question. I, I grew up with two older brothers. They were both very athletic, an athletic father, and so sports was just something we did, uh, and it wasn't just football. It was baseball during baseball season, football during football season, basketball during basketball season. Those were my three sports, and I loved them all. I played them all in high school and uh probably uh, had more team success, not probably, definitely had more team success in baseball and basketball playing at Canton South, um, but Football was the thing that uh, I could always throw the thing. You know, Uh, I even remember when the football was way too big for my hand, I could spin it a little bit. And as I got into high school, I thought, man, if you're going to play at the next level, that might be your best chance. And sure enough, after a junior season, some coaches started talking to me. And at that point, I really liked football just because I was the best at it. You know, I'm not sure I enjoyed playing it more than I uh, enjoyed the others, uh, probably three out of three on those the the sports I listed. But as far as my future, I thought it was football. And then when I got a chance to go to college, that's when it was a hundred percent football. And uh yeah, I threw and threw and threw. Um, I just love to throw. I like to throw rocks when I was a little kid. I like to throw apples. Uh, I won't tell you what I threw it at, you know. It wasn't all the time a good thing to throw apples at. Uh, you know, moving vehicles, animals. Kids, you know, that kind of stuff. But uh, I think it developed my arm strength over time. And I just fell in love with the quarterback position and really, really got into it after my junior season when I was a starter in high school. I can remember watching film in the coach's office, um, just hours on end and, you know, a, a little bit goofy that way, but I really liked that.
1: Yeah. And and, I mean, that that love kind of grew then and and you started to see the game kind of take shape. When did it start to slow down for you then? Because they always say, like, there's that point where you're a quarterback and then there's a point where it's like you're like, I can actually do this. When was that for you?
2: My sophomore year in college, um, you know, for the first time, I had a quarterback coach. You know, in high school, you just kind of be coached by the running backs coach or maybe the head coach. Uh, But I had a quarterback coach in college. And my freshman year, I was thrown in there due to to an injury to an older guy, and I was just trying to survive, man. I mean, you know, we had some good things happen. We won, you know, more games than they expected us to, and I had some success. But my sophomore year then, I knew what to expect. I knew the speed of the game. And for that first time, I thought like I was in control in the huddle and uh, was able to do some things, suggest some things to the coaches. And and uh, then, of course, my junior and senior year, it just got my goal was always to get better every year, you know, and I had a, a good sophomore year. So then I had to have a better junior year. I had a really good junior year and I had to go out on top. I had to have a great senior year. And, and luckily, I was able to to improve each year, get a little bigger, stronger, um, know the game a little bit more. And uh, it ended up with a, a nice college career, had a lot of fun at Bowling Green.
0: Mark, who were your uh, quarterback
2: coach and head coach at Bowling Green? Our head coach was Don Nealon, Canton guy, you know, uh, uh, loved Don. Uh, My brother was his first quarterback at Canton South High School in 1959. And I went to Bowling Green to play for Don. He was a friend of the family by then. Uh, We loved Don Nealon, just went to Morgantown and visited him last Thursday. Um, And my quarterback coach uh, was Roger Murb. Um, He was a guy that bounced around college football for a while, ended up uh, at Portsmouth, Ohio, his um, hometown, and he coached golf at Shawnee State. So he gave up football and decided to go to the Lynx. But uh, that allowed me somebody to talk to individually that understood every play from a quarterback standpoint. Uh, I don't know that he helped me with technique a lot. He just let me throw it. Uh, But he did teach me about defenses. He taught me about how to run the huddle um and that was good that was really good for me
0: so your next stop after that was obviously with the cleveland browns
2: yeah you know and and that was never really a goal i mean i did not go to bowling green guys don't go to bowling green to make it to the nfl you know guys go to ohio state to make it to the nfl uh but i just wanted to have fun playing college football win some games and uh you know have a good experience get out of there with a degree and figure out what I was going to do the rest of my life. And then after my junior year, I started getting uh, the Dallas Cowboys newsletter. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool, you know, but why? And sooner or later, I started getting phone calls and, and notices. And, and I thought, wow, you know, if you have a really good senior year, something might come of this. And uh, we did. And uh, then they started showing up on campus. There was no combine in those days. Uh, so they would actually send a scout or an assistant coach, in my case, typically a quarterback coach, which was really cool for me. I got to meet Zeke Bratkowski from the Green Bay Packers, Babe Perilli from the New England Patriots. You know, uh, these guys would come to Bowling Green and work me out. Now, typically in Bowling Green in the winter, you don't you don't want to throw outside. Well, we didn't have an arena. We didn't have a field house, an indoor football field. We would go to Memorial Hall, which is a gymnasium, a 3,500 seat gymnasium. So it's not even very big. And I would throw from corner to corner. And one time Zeke Bratkowski from the Packers came and we went over there. We didn't know it was winter graduation. They had chairs all on the floor <laughs> with a, a big die, um, you know, podium and stuff. And he said, hey, I'll go over there, you throw it to me. So there we are, we're throwing it over the chairs and over the lights and all kinds of stuff. So you did what you had to do, but they obviously saw enough that uh, they thought I was uh, worth a draft pick. And and everybody was telling me, the agents are the ones that tell you how high you'll get picked. Uh, The coaches don't, the scouts don't. Uh, And they told me I was gonna be a third rounder and they nailed it. I got drafted in the third round.
1: So first year at Bowling Green, I, I found your stats somehow. I don't know if you want me to repeat them, but I, I can, uh, <laughs> professional football researchers association podcast here, by the way, John Bozica, George Bozica, Mark Miller, our guest, uh, former quarterback for the Cleveland Browns, but I'm, I'm looking here year by year. You passed for 725 freshman year over 1200 and then junior and senior year you hit that 2000 yard mark by the time you were a senior was there a guy and, and I looked this up your wide receiver Jeff Groth I think was his name Gross. so was yep. Groth was that, falls mm-hmm. yeah was was that like the first like like one quarterback one to wide receiver one was that the first connection like that that you had at that level
2: he he was the first nfl caliber receiver i had um, i had some really good receivers up to that point Uh, But he was a very good high school athlete, skill athlete. And when he came, he was a guy that I could throw a five-yard hitch to, and he'd turn it into a 55-yard touchdown. He was that good. And we had him on one side, and my best friend out of high school would have been the guy on the other side, and he went to Syracuse. I still get mad at him about that today. But, uh, yeah, Jeff made me a much better player, and, you know – those numbers were phenomenal at Bowling Green because they never threw the ball. They were I-formation, handed off to the tailback, Paul Miles, Dave Preston. Those are 1,000-yard rushers two, three years in a row each, and, and you just handed it off. But when I got there, we started throwing it a little bit more each year. And, uh, you know, the pass game back then, as you guys know – we didn't have five wide outs. We had I formation tight in. I was split in on a, a wing back, you know, and we would drop back and throw that thing down the field. Well, now, you know, if you completed 50% of your passes when I played, that was really good. Now, if you're not completing 70 or at least 65, they're wondering what's wrong with you, you know? So it is a completely different game. People say, would you like to play today with all this passing? I said, heck Yeah man are you kidding me if we threw it 10 times a game we were airing it out now 25 times and a half right we've seen high school football lately um so yeah it's a different game um, but I loved playing back then and and uh Jeff Groth was he got about seven years in in the NFL was with Bum Phillips both in Houston and New Orleans um and uh really really good player
1: See, and and when you have a guy like that on the roster with you, did you feel that that you and him kind of then fed off of each other and you were like, hey, you know, like this is this is our ticket out of cold bowling green here. You know, obviously you end up you end up in cold Cleveland. I think he ends up in warm Miami, doesn't he? When when he's drafted. So it's like, you know, you get the short end of the stick there, but you're drafted third. Um, in the third round, but I mean, like you know I mean you kind of fed off of each other at that point didn 't you
2: yeah, we sure did um you know i 'm sure I helped him get noticed because he was able to catch a lot of balls, probably some bad throws that made him he made great catches, uh, and I sure liked throwing it to him. he got my yardage total up, and he gave us that deep threat um, I mean remember Toledo, my junior year uh, we were we were about done, you know, not very much time left, a minute and some seconds and we had about 70 yards to go and we threw it in the flat to Preston, the tailback, he got out of bounds. And then we dropped back and threw a bomb to, to growth. And I, you know, it was about a 50 yarder and he caught the thing, went up over a defender and caught it, put us on about the 10. I threw a a corner out to the other side the next play we win right at the end with just seconds left. And, and so he was that guy that, uh, you know, today back then, if a kid was double teamed and you threw it, you got yelled at, you know, but today, Double-team don't mean much, much if you got a great receiver. Jeff was that great receiver that we could have gone to, and he went up over the defender and brought that ball in. So, yeah, he was that guy for us.
0: You know, it's interesting you were talking about the fact about uh... – Completion percentages. And I was doing some research today about Len Dawson because I'm doing a podcast tomorrow night because he uh, passed away this year and we're doing like an in memoriam podcast. And it was interesting because he was considered one of the more accurate passers of his generation. He was at a, basically about a 57 to 58 percentage. And now, you know, that that would be considered at the low end, you know, but it yeah, wouldn't a,
2: be a very good uh, rating.
0: Yeah, he would be at a time, you know, when they had a lot of gunslingers, you know, had, you know yeah. they had Namath and who was around 50% and then LaMonica and some of those guys back in the 60s. It was really interesting how the passing game has changed so much, you know, over the years. And you mentioned Zeke Bratkowski. He actually spoke at our convention when we had it in Green Bay. And I got to interview him because we did a book about the 66 Packers. And one of the things that really impressed me about him was his cerebral approach to the game, you know, because him and Bart Starr, because he was a backup, had to work in sync. And, you know, they basically knew what each other was going to do. And that's what Lombardi sort of required of them is, you know, that that way, if he did have to come in, he didn't miss a beat. And he often said that, that they were always in sync together there wasn't any kind of, you know, uh, competition. He was in sync with Bart Starr.
1: Were you that way with Sipe?
2: Uh Not so much. You know, I know that uh, from coaching, you know, Bart uh, was the head coach when I was in Green Bay that one year. And Zeke was his quarterback coach. And they were best friends. You know, you could tell that they they had a special relationship, player, coach, head coach, assistant coach, but just friends, period. And, and I really, really got to enjoy uh, Zeke. He was a heck of a great guy. You know, Brian and I were were friendly, but not necessarily friends. We're from different worlds. You know, he's a Southern California surfer boy, and uh I was Midwest conservative. You know, uh we appreciated each other. We helped each other. Um when I got there, I he was threatened by me a little bit because he had not had a lot of success. Um he was a low round draft choice and and I was a third rounder and you know, they put me in in preseason a lot and kind of showcased me, maybe gave me some really good plays so I could. And, and I think, you know, he felt a little threatened until he got going that year, and Sam really believed in him. Um, and so that probably had a little bit to do with it. Um, but yeah, you know, I love Brian Stipe. We're We're probably closer friends on a couple of different levels today than we were when we were playing. Uh, just because of, of what how our lives have turned out and the kind of people we are now that we may not have been back then. But uh, I like Brian said, what a guy, good guy.
0: You mentioned Sam, of course, we're talking about Sam Rattigliano. What can you tell us about Coach Sam? I know he's always had that reputation as sort of the riverboat gambler and all that, but uh, I think he's probably one of the more beloved coaches in uh, Cleveland Browns history.
2: Yeah. I would agree with you. Beloved is a great word. Uh, he believed in his players and they returned the favor. Um, He always had our back. He always stuck up for us. That doesn't mean he wasn't tough on us, Um, but he, uh, he always had a quip or a quote, you know, I mean, you never were too tight or too nervous with Sam around because I remember one time we lost a couple that we probably should have won. And uh, you know, the newspapers were getting after us pretty good. And he walked in and the first thing he said in the the meeting was uh, well, I know you guys listen to the radio. I know you guys uh, read the newspapers. And he said, you know, right now they got, got us having one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. And he just looked at us. And we thought, that, you know, that's about right. You know, we're about done. Uh, and then he proceeded to go on and say how we were going to fix that thing. And and we did. And we went on a little bit of a win streak. And, um, you know, it probably had something to do with who we were playing too. But, uh, yeah, Sam, what a guy. You know, he was um, – he was the best. He was the best. What
1: was it was it fun to be on the Cardiac Kids team or or was it was it um anxious to be on the Cardiac Kids team because I mean <laughs> you guys would win a lot of games but then it's like you'd come down to the end and it's like you were always coming down to the last drive and and yeah. and I know as being the backup to Brian there was probably like a level of you and him chatting in some of those huddles being like hey here's what to look for. I mean, was, was that fun for you? Or was that like, gosh, how many more of these do we have to go through?
2: (laughs) It was a ball because we, we were never out of it. You know, we always felt like, you know, there might be some magic because we had seen it so many times and the cardiac kids thing, um, you know, the 1980 season, the red, right? 88 deal, their best season, Brian got the MVP because that was such a great team season a lot of people nowadays, because it was so long ago, equate cardiac kids to 1980. And that is true, but that's not when it started. It really was the last uh, four games of 1978 and all of 79. We had a lot of comeback victories, um, but it was fun, except for one time, guys. It was not fun in 1980 when I was a Green Bay Packer. And we came back to play Cleveland in Municipal Stadium. I'm on injured reserve with tendonitis in my throwing arm. And I'm standing on the sideline. And the Packers, who weren't very good, we scored with a minute and 30 to go. And our sideline was giddy. Oh, you thought they just won the Super Bowl. And I can remember telling the few guys that were standing next to me, I said, not so fast, guys. Not so fast. Sipe is going to have the ball and he can win. He can bring them back and win. And they're all looking at me like, ah, you know, that's your old buddy. You got it. You're got you feeding us a bunch of crap. He took them down the field and scored, and we lost. And they looked at me like, you know, how did you know that? I said, he does it all the time. Would you watch the Sports Center highlights, you know? So, yeah, that was the one time I wasn't happy about the cardiac kids.
0: Yeah, you know, as a fan back then, that was the feeling always. You'd be watching the game. They'd be behind, but you always felt that you were never out of it until – you know, that final, you know, uh, you know, gun, you know, you just never felt you were out of it. And no matter how much time you just felt he was going to do something and the team was going to do something. It was amazing. Hey, I got to ask one other thing before I forget, sort of the white elephant in the room. Did you ever have any contact with Art Modell?
2: Yeah. You know, Art was around quite a bit. Um, he would come into the locker room occasionally. Uh, he would helicopter down to uh, Kent state for practice. Um, he would, he talked to me not a lot um he talked to you know the stars more which made sense you know i was okay with that but i remember as a rookie uh he was on the phone call that called me to told me tell me i got drafted um and then he handed me off to sam and sam handed me off to peter Hadhazy, hazy who started talking you know a little bit about the contract and stuff um and and he would welcome me you know and and when he would come into the locker room um we did not have a relationship um you know just didn't because we we weren't around each other very much. Um, But he was, he was okay. I I, I just never felt like Art was enjoying what he was doing. You know, I mean, he just always felt like he was under pressure and, and uh, just, you know, was all business and, and he's a business guy, you know, that turned himself into a sports guy. Um, But yeah, he, uh, you know, he took a lot of heat for leaving. And, um, you know, I was, I was mad at him too. Um, he had, he had reasons that he thought were important enough. Um, it still hurts, you know, when he took Browns out of Cleveland, well, I guess he never did take the Browns, right. Right. The, the players in yeah. the organization, but, yeah. uh, you know, one of the, one of the good things that the NFL really did was keep all that in Cleveland. Who was your quarterback coach at the Browns? Uh, Jim Schaffner. Jim was, um, uh, he was, uh, he was the interim head coach, uh, when they let Sam go before Marty was hired. Um, really good. He was a DB for the Browns back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, there were two uh, DBs, Del Schaffner and Jim Schaffner, no relative uh, relation. Um, Jim's, uh, I guess he says his most infamous uh, job was head coach at TCU. Now, you guys remember, especially you, George, in the 70s, that was not a good job. That might no. be the worst job, you know. No. Um, so he said, they, if they, he told me one time, if you get smarter, Um, by losing than winning. He says, then I'm a stinking genius because I lost everything at TCU. But he was really good, connected very well with Brian Seip, Um, really liked Jim Schaffner, went on and was an offensive coordinator for the Houston Oilers, uh, retired and just passed away about a year and a half ago. And Zeke passed away about a year ago. So two of my quarterback coaches left pretty close together. Both really, really good guys. Did you have I know obviously
0: you had contact with the offensive players as as a quarterback. Did you have contact with the defensive players cuz obviously during that time frame the Browns had some fairly well-known defensive players also.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Joe Jones used to give me a ride from uh, our ho- our dorm at Kent out to the practice field which if you guys are familiar that's a pretty good hike. So he would give me a ride. He was always going out early. That scared me a little bit because I saw what he did to Bradshaw when he turned him upside down and pile <laughs> him. So I, I was real friendly and very quiet in that car. Um, and then Lyle Alzado, when we traded for him from the Broncos, uh, he came in and he didn't know a lot of guys other than a couple of the Pro Bowl guys like Shirk and Pruitt. Uh, but one guy he did know was a guy named Randy Rich, was a special teamer DB um, with the Broncos. And we had signed him as a free agent, and he was one of my best buddies. We lockered beside each other. So Lyle gravitated over toward us to talk to Randy. I met Lyle. As we're talking, he looks at me and he says, "Um, you married? I said, yes. He said, you got an apartment around here? I said, yes. He said, how many bedrooms? I said, two. He said, can I stay with you? (laughs) Who am I to tell Lyle Alzado no? He'll probably break my neck in practice the next day, you know? So I said, oh, sure, that'd be great. I hurried up and called Barb. I said, get ready. Lyle Alzado is coming. And he did. And he stayed with us for about three days till he found a place and was the perfect gentleman. He helped my wife do the dishes. Um, we called him Sybil because he had split personality, man. He had two personalities. One mm-hmm. was the way he acted in my apartment to my wife and the other one is the way he acted on that football field on Sundays. they were completely different personalities but yeah that's uh i w- I was as friendly as I could be to those defensive guys <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I
1: I think that you know the the game has changed so much over the course of time, and not just we were talking about passing but also the way that injuries are handled and the way that the game is handled on and off the field and how has some of that changed from your perspective? Like if you were hit hard in the 70s, you didn't go through a concussion protocol, did you? You just waited until you weren't woozy anymore, and then you were sent back out there, weren't you? It's it's changed a lot to help the player.
2: Yeah, the safety thing really is good, um, and you're right. Uh, it, it is a lot different. I remember getting a concussion. We were playing the the Colts at Old Memorial Stadium. I tried to run over Randy Logan an all pro safety. That wasn't a smart idea. Um, and so the next three or four plays, because it was at the end of the game, I would get the snap. I didn't. I did, couldn't remember what the snap count was, so I would just wait, and I'd say hut. If it came, I'd play. If it didn't, I'd say another hut. And then I'd turn to see which running back had his arms like this, and I'd give it to him. You know, because I didn't know what the play was. Uh, and in those days, you did that. In those days, you also did not want to come off the field injured because you're afraid somebody's going to take your spot. And you'd never get back on the field. You know, you, you'd be the, the Lou Gehrig deal, Wally Pitt or whatever his name was, you know. Um, and we weren't making that amount of money. So the owners and the, and the administration of the team wasn't that interested in protecting you. You know, they'd let you go back out there with an injury, knowing that you might miss the next couple of weeks because we want to win now. We're not worrying about that contract. And finishing out the season or that kind of stuff, so it is drastically different. I like the way it's a lot safer though
1: yeah, and let's talk about that. You bring up the money, the contracts into it, and I don't want you to you know pull out your w twos for us right now and show well, I remember you. I'll tell you but but you know, I mean, I know a couple of years ago like the the then San Diego Chargers signed their backup quarterback chase Daniel to a pretty lucrative deal, like yeah. what was a backup quarterback in nineteen seventy eight and seventy nine making
2: Okay. I got drafted in 78 in the third round as a quarterback. So that carries a little weight, fairly high round the pay position. Okay. Um, I got a $40,000 signing bonus. And my first season, I made $36,000. The next year, it escalated to 42, then to 47. Okay. Um, And I thought I had hit the jackpot. I mean, Barb and I, we both came from no money. Uh, we were just starting our lives together that bought us a car that bought my mama car, uh, it, you know, down payment for a house in the third year. So we were very, very happy with that. But I looked after the second strike after that in 82, the, the salaries popped up there a little bit in 86 or seven, whenever that next one was, then they just exploded. Okay. I looked at it then and the third round draft choice quarterback that year, I can't remember who it was. He got a million dollar signing bonus. I got 40,000 eight years earlier, you know? So yeah, it really popped up there. Now, you know, their salaries are up over a million, two, three, whatever it takes is, you know, to get it done. But um, you know, that's just, I'm sure the guys back in the day, you know, the Lou Grozas and, and Dante Lavelli and those guys, you know, what were they getting? 10,000, 12,000. I don't know. So Um, Yeah, I I think guys are overpaid today. But if uh, if the businesses, the sponsors can pay it and the owners are willing to dish it out, why shouldn't those guys accept it? You know, I mean, the the thing right now is they're looking for the one contract and they'll never work again. I can't imagine never having worked after I was done playing pro football. I mean, what a what a boring life that might be. Um, I would have wanted to do something, but. Um, I, we had to, we even worked in the off season. You know, a lot of us guys worked in the off season.
1: Well, and and you mentioned the, the, the here and now of it and how guys get that one deal. And sometimes it even makes them complacent on the field. And it's like, Mm -hmm. they go into a contract year and they're a pro bowler. They come out of it. They they've never seen the field, like, like what they did the year before. Do you think those days of knowing that it's like, this is going to fund a house, fund a car, fund kids, all those things. Do you think that made players
2: better back then? Um, I think it made them more loyal. It made them more dedicated. Um, I think, you know, player pride wants you to be the best player you can be, whether money is the motivator or something else, just your inner pride, whatever it is. Um, So, yeah, I think we played hard back then, but I think they play hard now. Um, Although Mac, Mac Jones didn't play real hard when he, Tried to tackle that guy that intercepted that ball on Sunday. I mean, man, if the game is is in the wings for me, I'm I'm doing everything I can to get that guy down. I'm grabbing his face mask. I'm tripping him. I'm doing anything to prevent from losing that game. And it looked like, eh, I'm not going to get hurt. Let him score. We'll, you know, we'll come back again next week. So it's a different mindset, no doubt about it.
0: Mark, you you also obviously spent a year with the Green Bay Packers, which you've mentioned. How did that transition occur from the time you had the two seasons with the Browns and then you transitioned with the Packers?
2: Well, you know, my second year with the Browns, I didn't play as much as my first year and Brian really got hot. Um, And so, you know, I, I doubt that I got any better as a backup quarterback. They went into that draft um, saying that they weren't going that quarterback was not one of their needs. But when Paul McDonald was available in the fourth round, they took it. And so then it became a battle between Paul and I. And Paul had a nice training camp, um, and I got shoulder tendonitis. So I didn't throw the ball very much and played very little. And so the Monday of the right before the opening week, the final cutdown, they traded me to Green Bay. And I went from being one of the younger guys in the, with the Browns to kind of middle of the age. I mean, the Packers were so young and, and not very good, too. <laughs> That's part of it. But uh, really good guys. Uh, the coaching staff was good. We love Green Bay as a city. And you know, there's a weird dynamic that took place for us guys. I loved being drafted by my hometown favorite team. And my friends and family were able to go to practices and games and every event. And there was that was a lot of that was cool, you know. But Barb and I always felt like we were entertaining. You know, we always felt like we were trying to get tickets for this game, that game, you know, trying to meet people after practice. And I really felt like I was being a social director more than I was trying to be a quarterback. When we went to Green Bay, that social crap went out the window. I mean, Barb's <laughs> mom and dad came up to visit us once. My mom came up to visit us once, and that was it. We didn't know anybody else. And so we just got to deal with football, uh, got some great friends up there. Uh, that was a lot of fun. I wish we could have won some more games, but running out onto Lambeau Field, that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you. We were up in Green Bay in 2016 for our our convention, and it's to me, it's unlike any other a town. I'll call it a town because that's what it is. What it is. Yeah. You know, it's it's a town, and it's all about the Packers. You know, you yeah. go in and you see Lambeau Field, and you're you know overwhelmed, and then you know you see the history, and it, you know it, it just it's an amazing little place, and I'll call it that because it is just a little mm-hmm. place, but it's got yeah. an NFL team there, and that's their. That's our bread and butter,
2: but it, but it is. And it's the Packers and and ice fishing. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. And then you live three blocks from the stadium in an apartment, three blocks. I mean, it's amazing.
0: I know it's amazing because you're in the town and all of a sudden you come on Lambeau field. It's in this, it's in the center of like a a residential section. It just, you know, it is, it really is something. And you played for Bart Starr. Yeah. And Zeke Bratkowski.
2: Yeah. Bart Starr, you know, that, that was an honor, you know, to play for Bart. Uh, because of how great a player he was. he's a great guy, probably was nicer than he should have been with some of our players. They took advantage of him a little bit. But, you know, I, I didn't play a long time, but I played at a very fertile time. I counted up, I work at the Pro Football Hall of Fame now, as you guys know. I counted up one time, the current in Chinese, okay, 347 or whatever. I either played with or against twenty six percent of the guys that are in the hall of fame isn't that amazing that's amazing listen to the coaches i played for i played for bart he's in the hall of fame i was with the uh in training camp i was with the kansas city chiefs coach by then marv levy hall of fame i was also in training camp with the oakland raiders the year they were moving to la and that was tom flores hall of fame and so You know, just bits and pieces of being at different places, how I was so blessed to be around greatness and see that and learn from that. And I think that's a big part of why uh, or the the philosophy I developed when I was a coach, uh, because I saw what they did. You take the good, you ignore the bad. And uh, I saw a lot of good. And then in high school, college, you throw in Don Nealon College Football Hall of Fame. In high school, Tim Miller's my baseball coach. He's in the Ohio Baseball Hall of Fame. Red Ash, the legend. He's in the Basketball Hall of Fame. I I played with some great – for some great, great coaches.
1: Well, and and when you were in Cleveland, I mean, obviously there was Ozzie Newsome. I know I know Dave Logan, I think, was a receiver then. Uh, yep. That Reggie Rucker that was on those Reggie teams Rucker. as well. So, yes, I mean, you get yeah. some, some good wide receivers there. But then you go to Green Bay. and I mean, as you said, it's a bad team, and they've got a stud – at wide receiver, what's <laughs> yeah. it like in practice throwing balls to James Lofton? And, and, and take me through, maybe, whereas Dave Logan was a good wide receiver, what made James Lofton a Hall of Famer? When you threw passes to him in practice, what made him a Hall of Famer?
2: Speed. Speed. James was very, very fast, a track kid at Stanford. Uh, Dave had great size, great hands, good route runner, but you take all of that and add speed to it, and that was James. Um, he could outrun any, he was a big guy, you know, he could outrun DBs, cornerbacks. He could go up over them. I remember we'd play prevent at the end of the game and they'd put him in at free safety because wow. he could run and jump and just get to every hail Mary pass. You know, um, he was, he was a lot of fun to watch and practice. So was Ozzie. You know, people see things that go on on Sundays and they see the replays. But you want to see these guys in practice. I mean, the plays they make are unbelievable. Now, they don't dive a lot like they do in games, although Ozzie did. Sam would get on him all the time. Newsom, if you tear up a shoulder, you know, because you're afraid of a guy getting hurt diving for passes That's just the way Ozzie was. I mean, he was going to do that. And then with the Raiders, uh, probably the most natural ability player I was ever around personally was Marcus Allen. He made plays in practice. One hand grabs behind his back. It it was just uh, – we would just look at each other like, are you kidding me? You know, we knew he was in for a Hall of Fame career that first year. Uh, In 82, he was a rookie, and uh, we knew right away he was special.
0: You know, one thing John and I were talking about the other day we wanted to ask you is I I think the average fan has a view or sort of an idea of what life is like in the NFL – what would you say to average fans about what is life like in the NFL? You know, because I think we have certain maybe stereotypes or ideas, what well, we think it's this or we think it's that. What, what having played in the NFL, maybe surprised you the most or, or how would you characterize that
2: for the average fan? Well, I think it's changed from the time I played to now. Uh, we would go several places. Nobody recognized us. You know, uh, there's no show, social media, so they didn't see your picture a lot. When it did, it was far away with a face mask in front of it. Uh, so I think there there's a lot less privacy now than there was then. Um, I, I think there is much more um, time demanded of players now. Um, it, back then we went home in the off season. They don't. They stay in Cleveland. You know they they report to the facility every day for workouts. We were responsible to work out on our own. We had some mini camps, you know, and they have OTAs. Um, so you know some of that's similar. Our season was much longer. We went to training camp right after the 4th of July, like the 10th or 11th of July. Now they don't go to August. You know, we had more preseason games. You know, pretty soon they're not going to have any. Um, they have more games now, more rounds of the playoffs. Uh, so it is much more demanding of their schedule now uh, than it was for us. But, you know, what I would say to the the common fan is um, uh, pro football for us, we were blessed to be in that position to have the ability to make a team or play a little bit. Um, You know, we love the fans. Um, You know, somebody said, you know, fans can cheer, fans can boo as long as they don't sit there and be quiet. You know, you just, (laughs) and Brown's fans are never quiet. So we never had to worry about that. Um, It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. Well,
0: and you mentioned too, uh, when you were mentioning like in passing Lou Groza, I remember my, and how players, you know, played during the season, but then they had off-season jobs. Cause I remember my dad worked at the uh, Diebels Incorporated in Canton and Lou Groza acted as sort of as a PR guy and sort of did that kind of stuff. And he brought me home an autographed picture of Lou Groza when I was like in junior high. And, yeah. you know, it, it, that wasn't uncommon because in researching like the the Packers of 66 and we also did a book on the 58 Colts, Johnny Unitas. One thing that that came through was the closeness sometimes of the players with the fans because they did work jobs in the off season and they were often at the same places as, as the fans were, you know, and you said, you know, obviously as a football player, you're behind a mask and sometimes they don't recognize you, but it was interesting to me. And I think that's changed too because of the salary structures and everything else is that whole
2: lifestyle has really changed. Yeah. I think players in my day were more accessible, you know, uh, now it's like, you want me to do what, how much am I going to get paid? You know, guys, I I remember signing autographs for an hour after practice at Kent State, you know, and and um, we'd go a lot of places and do things just to help out. You know, Uh, now it's all a a personal appearance fee and, you know, know, the the agent gets a cut and, you know, so it's a different world. uh, But I also understand they do some of that to protect what privacy they do have. I'm not, you know, slamming the players. Uh, some of them were very community-minded, um, but, uh, yeah, it's different. It's it's just different day and age, not better, not worse, just different.
1: You know, you mentioned earlier you said, I would have loved to have played in today's NFL because you'd be slinging the ball around 30, 40 times a game. It would, you know, inflate your numbers and, and help you as a passer and probably make you a better quarterback. But mm-hmm. would you equally, you say that, but would it be harder to play in today's game because of – Twitter and because of Facebook and because of Instagram, like, would you want to play in that part of the NFL
2: today? No, <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I, you know, you guys know I'm old fashioned, you know what you went through to just get me on this call. Right. Uh, I don't do any social media. I don't, I don't even know what that stuff is honestly. Uh, now was, if I were young today, I probably would. Cause you grow up with it. Right. My, my grandson, he's eight. I tell him I ask him how to fix my computer and my phone. You know, there that's just the way it is. Um, but uh it was a lot easier on me. Uh we didn't even have cell phones. You know, nobody bothered me. i get home and Barb might say, Hey, so-and-so called once you call back about you know, meeting uh doing an appearance down at the car dealership. That's how that stuff was arranged, you know. Uh so it's different. Uh I I personally you know, you're most comfortable with, familiar with what you know. That's what I know. That's what I would be more comfortable with. Uh, the Facebook stuff and all that. That scares the heck out of me.
0: Mark, you mentioned it, John, I obviously know that you work at the Hall of Fame now. Can you share with our listeners what, what you do at the Hall of Fame and what that experience has been like?
2: I'm called a supervisor, which means I'm an old retired guy that uh, has a key, and so I open up in the morning. There's five of us. We're all former coaches um we open up in the morning turn on all the exhibits get ready to you know for the employees to come in and then the guests show up at nine um we hang out all day in case people need in locked rooms that we can get them in we help clean up messes we uh we count uh, the cash in the drawers take the the deposits to the bank and then when it's all said and done in the evening we shut it down uh we're also there representing the hall on during any events uh evening events banquets meetings all that kind of stuff And for uh, an old retired coach, it's a ball. I mean, you talk about a perfect place to work. Are you kidding me? When I get bored, I walk around and I read stuff, you know, I I watch a monitor or, or, you know, it's just, it is for a football guy, for a football nut, it is a great place to work. People, the people that work there are very friendly. And the thing about the guests, they all want to be there. Nobody's forced to come there. They come because they want to be there. It's not the hospital. It's not the attorney. It's not the tax office. They come because they are excited. They want to be there. They walk in with a smile on their face. And we want them to leave with a smile on their face. And it, it is uh it's a great place.
0: Well, you guys do a great job. I know when you hosted us last year for our convention, it was just, you know, fantastic, first rate. Uh and you know, and and you're right. When I go over there to sometimes have a meeting with John Kendall, the archivist in the uh in the research center you know, I'll stand in the lobby until he comes out and gets me. And the one thing I know is if everybody walks in is they sort of have this look of wonder on their face. And like, they're so excited <laughs> to be there and so enthusiastic. And it's like yeah. you said, they want to be there, you know, and they know it's going to be a great experience. And you can see that excitement as people just walk into the place and you see, you know, license plates from all over the, the yeah. country too, which is amazing, yeah. you know, and yeah. they have their gear on normally. And it just, it it's, it's, a, it is an amazing place. Yeah, Mark last lucky
2: for that to be here.
1: Mark, last thing for you here, yep. and then and then we'll let you go here. Um, PFRA podcast here. John, George, Mark Miller, our guest, uh, former Cleveland Brown, former uh, Green Bay Packer, grew up in the Canton area. Uh, I don't know that anybody's ever asked you this because I mean, you did have a cup of coffee in the NFL, but when everything is done and you know you're no longer here, what do you hope your legacy will be on the game of football? And, and that may seem you know you're you're you were a backup quarterback, but what do you hope that people say when they think of Mark Miller? What do you hope your legacy was on the game of football
2: uh, i don 't know i 'm going to have any lasting effect on the game of football. I hope the people that met me through football uh thought I was a good guy. Uh, my true legacy is is my kids and my grandkids you know they 've got the blood coursing through their veins, that my wife and I gave them and uh that's what it's all about for me is what effect they have after we're gone uh did we teach them anything did we mentor them in the right way um that's that's what we really care about in our family it's all about family first with my wife and i
1: mark uh my dad and i george we we thank you so much for doing this and uh, uh i'm sure we'll see you down the line at a at a state football playoff yeah, game or At an an event somewhere. Be well and uh, thanks for doing this.
3: Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. See you later. Take care. Hey, there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, AKA the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, Here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with
1: players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with pro football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the pro football history nugget of the week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network.